Open your Bibles to Psalm 96. We'll be looking at that in just a moment. Psalm 96. I know the answer. I just don't know how to say it. I know the answer. I just don't know how to say it. Those of us who have been teachers, we've heard that a lot. I knew the answer, teach. I just didn't know how to say it. Perhaps those of us who have been students have said that a little too often. I understand. I just can't put it into words. And yet I think what most teachers figure out pretty quickly, and I think what most of us will admit as students eventually, is that muddy, cloudy, imprecise answers generally arise from muddy, cloudy, imprecise thinking. When we don't really understand, we can't really articulate. On the other side, true understanding generally produces clarity. We can say it in a clear, concise way. Real comprehension yields comprehensible responses. With that in mind, I give you this essay question. What is worship? What is worship? Can we define that with clarity and precision? And if not, why not? It ought to be something each and every one of us can define clearly and precisely. Last week, we looked at the importance of worship, the fact that we were created for worship, that we are destined for worship, that we were redeemed in order to worship, that, we, that the scriptures give large tracts and much, many pages to the subject of worship. And perhaps most importantly, that worship is formative. It shapes us. It molds us. It makes us in to the human beings we were created to be. If worship is that important, and it is, then we ought to be able to define it with clarity and precision. We're going to look at a handful of different scripture passages this morning with that goal in mind develop a clear, concise, simple, biblical definition of worship so that we can think precisely, carefully about the subject that is so important, central to what we do as a church. Follow along now as I read Psalm 96. I'll remind you that here at the Shore Harvest Presbyterian Church, we believe the Bible to be the only infallible rule for faith and for practice. And among other things, that means this. If we want to know how to worship, if we want to know how to worship rightly, we have to know this book. Hear now the inerrant authoritative word of the Almighty. <clears throat> oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless his name, tell of his salvation from day to day, declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples, for great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods, for all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens 
Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. Let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar in all that fills it. Let the field exult and everything in it. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord. For he comes. He comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we do desire to come into your courts this morning and to glorify you, to ascribe to you the things that the psalmist has said must be ascribed to you, to give to you that which we ought to give to you, to to honor and worship you in the way that was described here. And toward that goal, we seek to better understand worship this morning, and we ask your guidance in this matter. Let my words be yours. If I say anything that is incorrect, inaccurate, let it be quickly forgotten, so that your word, your message is the one that resonates in our ears and changes our hearts. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I was a young student, probably sometime around fourth grade. I don't know exactly when it was. And I decided I wanted to write dictionaries. Doesn't sound all that exciting, but think about it for a moment. You see, in my fourth grade brain, I said, if I'm writing the dictionary, that means I get to decide what words mean. Isn't that how it works? You write the dictionary, you decide what a word means. But if you understand dictionaries, that's actually not at all how they work. Dictionaries don't define words in the sense that they determine their meaning, they decide their meaning, but rather, lexicographers, those who write dictionaries, they study how a word is used, and then they reflect that in their dictionary. It's usage that defines a term. We're going to take a look this morning at how the Bible uses some of the key words surrounding worship. We're going to be, just for a short time and without a lot of detail or academic rigor, we're going to be lexicographers. We're going to look into this subject of worship by looking at the words of worship. If you look at the bulletin, you'll see that rather than the typical outline, there's a, a grid there for the, uh, the notes this morning. That seemed like a good idea earlier in the week. Not so sure when I was reflecting on the sermon yesterday. I'm sure somebody will let me know what they think of that grid, but we'll give it a try. Let's take a look at this subject of worship. We saw it there in Psalm 96.9, worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Turn in your Bibles. That same word is used in some other places. Turn in your Bibles to Genesis 22. Five. Genesis 22, 5. In that grid on that page, what we're doing here is we're looking at the Old Testament Hebrew words. We're going to look at two sets, or two, type, two words, maybe, maybe draw a horizontal dotted line or something in that section. We're looking at the first sets. Hebrews 22, 5. Uh, sorry, not Hebrews, Genesis. 
Did I say Hebrews the first time? My apologies. Genesis 22, 5. It's the Hebrew language, but it's the book of Genesis. So this is the story of Abraham and Isaac. Abraham has been told to take Isaac and to sacrifice Isaac up on the mountain. And in Hebrew, uh, I said it again, didn't I? In Genesis 22, 5, we read this. Then Abraham said to his uh, young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. That's the same Hebrew word that we had there in Psalm 96.9. And it's the Hebrew word that's behind hundreds and hundreds of the times you see the word worship in your English Bible is that word right there. Uh, Hava, if you care, if you're interested, not that particularly important. But look over the next page. Next chapter, in fact, Genesis 23, 7. So 22, 5, Abraham says, we're going to go over and worship on the mountain and come back to you. Genesis 23, 7. So here we have the same author, Moses, writing about the same man, Abraham, in the same book, Genesis, and using the same word, looking at 23, 7. Abraham rose and worshipped the Hittites. I'm going to guess that's not what it says in your English Bible. But it's the same Hebrew word. Abraham rose and bowed to the Hittites. The first thing I want us to recognize here, let's go one more uh, over, uh, Genesis 24, 26. One more chapter over, Genesis 24, verse 26. This one is interesting. The man bowed his head. That's the word we've been looking at. I'm sorry, that's not the word we've been looking at. That's a different word for bowing. And worshipped the Lord. That's the word we're looking at. And what we see here, and if you continue this study, you could do this and replicate this in dozens and dozens, even hundreds of places throughout the Old Testament. What we see here is this word unites the idea of worship with the physicality of bowing. These two things are brought together in this one word, and they are united in many, many passages throughout the Old Testament. So the first thing we see there in that column entitled The Activity of Worship, if we look at the activity of worship, what is involved? Well, there is some sense of bowing. Of bowing. Now, what does bowing indicate? How is that connected to worship? Well, think about the ways that we bow, even in our society today, in our culture today. If two of you start for the, you're you're a complete stranger in the store, and you both start for the same door at the same time, and you decide to let the other one go, you might step back and bow. You aren't going to bend over at the waist in a full-blown way, but you're going to bow. You're going to let them go. You're going to yield to them. You're going to yield them. In a conversation, if you and another person begin to talk at the same time and you decide to let that person go, you give a little nod of the head, a little wave of the hand, you go ahead and go. Bowing is an act of deference, an act of yielding, an act of giving the other person what they wanted and putting your desires or intentions in a secondary place. 
So what is the attitude that's referenced here? If, if bowing is the activity of worship, then what is the attitude of worship? Well, it's that of deference, of yielding, of giving way to, of letting the other take priority and precedence. So what is the application of worship? How does this play out? Where do we see this? Well, we could look at a place like John 14, 15. John 14, 15. If we look at John 14, 15, what do we see there? Jesus says uh, 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 to the disciples, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. You'll yield to me. You'll be deferential toward me. You'll give me what I want. You'll let me have my way. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. One of the key Hebrew words, one of the key Old Testament words for worship, has with it this idea of bowing, of yielding to, of being deferential toward the other. Now, turn your Bibles to Exodus 3.12. Exodus 3.12. We're going to look at another important Old Testament word for worship. Exodus 3.12. Then Moses said to... I'm sorry, that's 3.10. Where's 3.12? That's 3.13. I've got to back up. There we go. He, God, said, But I will be with you, Moses, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. That word, serve, the Hebrew word behind that, uh, avad, if, again, if you care, is, has the idea of worshiping. Now think about it. Even here we know that. We know the story that when the people were finally set free, after all the plagues and after all the back and forth with Pharaoh, when the people finally escape and then the Red Sea drama and then the, they don't have water or food, when they finally are free and, and secure, do they, in some kind of literal sense, physically serve God on the mountain? And in fact, this is the word, if you go back to Genesis uh, uh, 2, where it talks about how no shrub had grown up on the, in the land, because why? Because there was not yet a man to, same word, serve the soil. Physically labor in the soil. Same word. Now, did they go physically labor on the mountain on behalf of God? Did they till it up and plant it? No. What did they do? They worshiped God. On that mountain. So, what is the activity of worship that we capture here in, in Exodus three twelve and back in Genesis two? What's well, the idea of serving, of working for, of laboring on behalf of? One other place that's worth looking at. Same word, Numbers three seven. Numbers three seven captures this same word. Addressed to the sons of Aaron, the house of the priest. And in Numbers 3, 7, we have this. They shall keep guard over him and over the whole congregation before the tent of meeting as they minister at the tabernacle. Same Hebrew 
word. In Genesis 2.5, it has to do with uh, tilling the soil. In in Exodus uh, 3.10, it has to do with worshiping God on the mountain. And here in Numbers, it has to do with ministering at the tabernacle. Same word. So what is the activity here? Serving, working for. And what is the attitude of worship that's expressed? Well, it's tending to another, being concerned about the other, being focused on the other. Think about where we use that word today, the idea of serving. If we go to a, a restaurant, if we head out after church today and go get something to eat, what do we, who comes to our table? The server. And what do we expect of them? That they would be attentive to us. That they would care about us not about themselves in that moment. They would not be disgusted at the things we ask of them, but that they would readily do those things. That's the idea captured here for worship. You know, we think about the application of that. Where do we see that? Well, we see it in Romans 12.1, where Paul says to this, basically Romans 1 through 11, he's been kind of explaining the gospel And then in Romans 12, he says, therefore, and he says, what, present your bodies as living sacrifices. And in your translations, it'll be interesting how your translations differ at this next part. Some of your translations will say, which is your reasonable uh, service. And some of your translations will say, which is your spiritual worship. And it's because that's tied up there, that idea that these things go together. That we serve, and that is an act of worship. By the way, Deuteronomy 5.9, it's interesting, Deuteronomy 5.9. Deuteronomy 5 is the second giving of the Ten Commandments, the retelling of the Ten Commandments. Deuteronomy 5.8 is the, the uh, 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 second commandment, you shall make no graven images. And then Deuteronomy 5.9, it follows up and says this, you shall not, hava, that first word, you shall not uh, uh, bow down to them, or avad, serve them. The two words that we're talking about that are tied to worship come together in the commandment. In other words, you shouldn't worship these idols in any way, shape, or form. You shouldn't do anything. You shouldn't be bowing before them. You shouldn't be serving them. You must not worship them. Let's do a quick survey of some of the New Testament words that are tied up in worship And this will go a little faster because what you're going to see is exactly the same things. The New Testament picks up those themes and it echoes throughout the New Testament. Look at Luke 5, 8. Look at Luke 5, 8. One of the more fascinating encounters of the disciples with Jesus. Luke 5, 8. Luke is recording the early call of the disciples And you'll remember that several of them were uh, 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 fishermen. Peter was one of those fishermen. Peter's in the boat and is unable to be catching anything. Jesus comes to him and uh, uh, provides for a miraculous catch of fish. And in that moment, it dawns on Peter. Peter realizes that he stands not in the presence of a mere man or a mere mortal, but that he stands in the presence of one who is also divine. And in Luke 5, 8, we read this. 
when Simon Peter saw it, the miraculous catch of fish, he fell down, fell down. There's that word at Jesus' knees saying, depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. We see Peter worship Jesus with the physicality of bowing, of lowering himself in front of. What did we see in our New Testament reading in Revelation 4.10? In Revelation 4.10, we have the, the, uh, uh, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him. And we have these two ideas tied in together again. So in the Old Testament, we have a word that means to bow. It can also mean to worship. In the New Testament, we see those two concepts tied together. I've just picked two examples, but they are throughout. We're going to see, you know, you may recall how John, at the beginning of the book of Revelation, he falls down at the feet of the angel, and the angel says, get up and don't worship me, for I am a fellow servant with you. What do we see in Isaiah in our Old Testament reading today? When he, was, when he walked into the temple, when he walked into the Jerusalem temple and he, and he met God there, he fell down in worship. <clears throat> so does the Greek, does the New Testament also have this concept of service? Look at Matthew 4.10. Matthew 4.10. Matthew 4.10, Jesus is out in the wilderness being tempted by Satan, and he said, Jesus said to him, to Satan, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Jesus ties together the idea of worship and service. Look at Acts chapter 16, verse 10. Acts 16.10. It's the account of uh, uh, Paul and his uh, cohorts in, in uh, the city of Philippi. And you'll remember um, uh, uh, I have 16.10, but that is most certainly not the verse I want. Oh, 16.17. 16.17. Same chapter. Okay. They're in Philippi, and, and they're walking around. Remember, the, there's that slave girl, that demon-possessed slave girl. And she's following them around. And everywhere they go, she's calling out after them. And 1617 tells us what she calls out. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God. These men are servants of the Most High God. They're worshipers of God. And she recognizes it and expresses it through service. By the way, in the throne room of heaven, we glimpse in Revelation, we saw in the one place where it says that those before the throne fell down. That's repeated in, in Revelation 7.15. And then in Revelation 7, uh, sorry, 22.3, we have exactly the same scene, except the word is substituted. It's the word they worshipped before the throne. Again, there is an equation of these things. So, I'm sorry, serving. They serve before the throne in the one place. They worship before the throne in the other. Final example. You don't need to look there, but Luke 10, verses 40, 41, and 42. It's the account of 
Jesus visiting the home of Mary and Martha? And do you remember the frustration that Martha had? Lord, I'm busy serving, attending to the needs of the people. And do you remember Jesus' response? Yes, but Mary has chosen the better thing. She's attending to me. She's serving me. There is that idea of worship and service, and they're intertwined. So what's the picture we get from this quick survey? And it is, I've only scratched the surface. There are hundreds of examples that we could flesh out. But what we see quickly, what we see immediately, is that in worship, there is a, a physicality of bowing that portrays an attitude of deference, an attitude of yielding. And there is a physicality of serving that depicts an attitude of, of, attentin, of, of attentiveness, attention to, of putting the other person and caring about what they want. We bend in order to honor and we bend in order to serve. What we recognize is that worship is a verb both of activity and of attitude. It is a verb both of activity and of attitude. Said another way, it includes both uh, action and adoration. Both action and adoration. Now, it might seem at this moment that we would have enough to define worship. But here's the problem. At this point... We can't explain how this is different than everything else in our lives. And in fact, the elements of worship are all around us all the time. Even the unchurched, unsaved, total atheists participate in the elements of worship all the time. And in fact, we're supposed to. Go back to Psalm 96. Look back at Psalm 96 where we started this morning. And let me just walk through some of the illustrations. Let me pull out, we're going to come back in a future week and look into this in some more detail. But right now, just let me pull out some of the activities of worship that are described there in Psalm 96. Verse 2. Sing to the Lord, bless his name. And you say, well, that doesn't happen all the time around us. It ought to happen occasionally. Men, do you not ever sing love songs to your wives? To your wife. That's a weird sentence to construct. Men collectively should have wives singularly and individually. I don't know. That's a weird... uh, My grammar there is struggling a little bit. We ought to sing a love song to our wife and bless her name. Verse 5, your gods are like that, our God is like this. I'm not obviously quoting it, but that's what verse 5 captures. Your God is like that, but our God is like this. Now tell me, have you ever seen this bumper sticker? My child is an honor roll student at such and such a school. My child is like this and is noteworthy because of it. 
So the activity of saying what is noteworthy about God, we say about our kids. Bosses ought to be saying about their employees. A boss ought to say once in a while what is noteworthy, what is exceptional about this or that employee. Teachers about their students, parents about their children. It is a routine exaltation of what is noteworthy about the people around us. By the way, my wife wouldn't let me do this, but with three sons in the Army, I wanted a bumper sticker that said, my son can blow up your honor roll, student. But she said no, so, you know. Verse 7, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. My dad can beat up your dad. My iPhone 29 XRLT7 can do things your phone can't do. My new car has 1.7 million horsepower. We extol the power and strength of people and things all the time. It is a routine part of being human. And by the way, it's something the scriptures tell us to do. Honor your father and mother. And by extension, we understand that means you honor all those in places of authority over you as is deserving of their place of authority. All your peers are honored as is deserving in their place of peers. And you even honor your subordinates in the appropriate way of a subordinate. Paul says to the Corinthian church that you should honor people like Stephanus and his household. Hmm. Verse 8, bring an offering and come into his courts. I have three words for you. Mall food court. Do we walk into that court with an offering? Do we come in there with something to give? Do we come in there with our hard-earned money, our God-granted sustenance, and go to spend it at that shrine of commercialism? Bring an offering and come into his courts. Verse 11, be glad, rejoice. Verse 12, exult. Whether it's teachers or coaches or, or parents, whether it's bosses over employees, spouses over each other, we do these things. You see the problem we have here? The things that are in worship, we do all the time. I already mentioned how we use bowing to yield, to defer to someone else, to show them deference. I've already mentioned how we serve other people and are attentive to their wants and needs. So if all of these things are part of our everyday lives, we're still faced with the challenge. What are we doing here? What is this? How is it different? And by the way, one of the great lies of the last 40, 50 years of the North American church is that it isn't different. That it isn't that big of a deal. That we don't need to do this. 
That worship is nothing more than these things. And since you do these things in your everyday lives, you, you know, I walk around. I, when something wonderful happens, when I, you know, I find a $20 bill laying on the pavement, I pick it up. There's nobody around to give it to. I'm, I've tried. There's nobody to give it. I'm clearly not stealing it. I thank God for that $20 bill. I honor him for it. I, I worship him in that moment. And you do. When he provides, when he t- cares for me, when I avoid the accident on the highway, I praise God for that. And you might. And you should. I, when I go to the golf course, I exult in the beauty of the sunrise on the, the dew-strewn grass. As you should, except on Sunday morning. So people have said, oh, I do these things all the time. Why gather in worship? I left a box on that chart for the English word because I think it pulls together some of these elements beautifully. The English word worship. Where does it come from? What does it mean? Its root is easy to hear. It comes out of the idea of worth-ship. Worth-ship. An expression of the value of someone or something. An expression of what they are worth. And these different Hebrew words that get translated worship, these different Greek words that are translated into worship, this idea of bowing and of serving that are captured together in the English word worship is an expression of worth-ship. And so we see that just as in the everyday occurrences, a teacher might extol, might praise a student, good job on that pop quiz. A coach might uh, uh, honor a player on the team. In the huddle afterwards, I want to give the game ball to Janie. She, did a gr- she had a great game today. Spontaneous moments of acts that look like and are a part of worship. But we recognize that there are times and places where you set aside a special way to do that. You have an awards banquet at the end of the season. And you get dressed up. And you carve out time from your busy schedule. And you say things in a more thoughtful, purposeful, thought, planned out manner. The coach doesn't, hopefully, doesn't just get up and wing it, but gets up and says, here are the things I'd like to acknowledge about my team. At the end of the semester, the school has an awards service. Here are the following students who had perfect attendance. Here are those who made the honor roll. Here are those who got straight A's. Here's the top student in this discipline and that discipline. We set aside a time for purposeful, special, intentional praise and exaltation and honor and glory. I would like to define church worship in that way. 
church worship is a special time for expressing God's worth through our affections and our actions. Church worship is a special time for expressing God's worth through our affections and our actions. It's not that we don't worship God every day, all the time. We ought to. The question is this. Is he worth more than that? Is his value greater than that? Does he merit an extra effort to acknowledge who he is and what he's done? Church worship is a special time for expressing God's worth through our affections and actions. And let's think about some of the implications of that. Think about our attire. Be legalistic for me to tell you what it should look like. I don't want to play the part of the, the, the missionaries that went wrong 100 years ago going into places and making them dress like uh, North Americans and, and act like North Americans. That's not the rule. That's legalism. But I think we can pretty safely say what it shouldn't look like. On Sunday morning, you shouldn't look like you just rolled out of bed and didn't do anything and didn't care and didn't make any effort and just strolled in here. It's a special time to express God's worth through our affections and our actions. If we look like we just rolled out of bed and walked in, and some will say, oh, but come on, pastor, God sees past the outer clothes. He sees past the outer layer. Yes, But that's got three problems. One, it misses the fact that the Bible spends a lot of time detailing exactly what the priests were supposed to wear. God cares about the physical appearance of things. He cares about beauty. Number two, if God can see past the outerwear, that doesn't mean he can't see the outerwear. This isn't like an x-ray machine where it can only see the bones and it can't see the skin. God's not limited to seeing what's on the inside, but he he doesn't even notice what's on the outside. Number three, if God can see past the outerwear and see into our inner person, don't you want to see, have him see somebody who cared? Don't you want him to look in and see that you made an effort? Not because you thought that you were going to fool him, but because you never did fool him and he still loved you. You said that's worth an extra effort. That's worth something a little special. Maybe think about it this way. If you're going to a coworker's retirement party, a special time to honor them. You're going to a funeral, a special time to honor that person. You're going to a 50th wedding anniversary, a special time to honor those people. What do you wear? How do you prepare? How do you get ready for that? Does God deserve any less? If it's a special time, do we dismiss it? Is it the last thing we do? Only if there's nothing else to do? 
or is it the priority that we are not going to miss unless we have no choice? Vacations are returning this year. Travel is returning this year. When you go on vacation, you make the effort to plan out everything else you're doing, the sites you're going to see, the places you're because they're important to you. And it's a special time. Do you make the effort to scout out a church and go worship God on vacation? What are some other implications? If worship is a, a, a special time for expressing God's worth through our affections and actions, consider some of the other implications. When you're walking out, are you asking, what did I get out of that? Are you saying to yourself, I didn't like that? I don't like that song. I don't like that sermon. I didn't like this. I... If that's how you're judging the worship service, you've lost sight of who it's about and who it's for. Go back to the example of a server in a restaurant. Is there a blessing to that server? Yes. If they're attentive to the one they're waiting on, if they're careful to listen to what that person wants, if they're uh, 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 careful to serve that person with diligence, do they get a blessing? Yes. Their tips are bigger. But that's not what it's about. It's about paying attention to that person. Do you leave the worship service judging what you got out of it or what you put into it? Church worship is a special time for expressing God's worth through our affections and actions. We're going to look throughout the rest of the summer at a lot of the implications of that. But we must first nail that down in our head. We must first recognize the reality of that right there. It is a special time to acknowledge God's worth through our affections and actions. Of all the things worth dying for in the early church, there were really only two that most of them were willing to die for. The Word of God and the public worship of God. It was a special time, and it was not one they were willing to give up. We saw it in our New Testament reading. Revelation 4.11 Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. Let worship be for us a special time of expressing God's worth through our affections and our actions. Let's pray. God, we do not worship you as you deserve. We do not adore you in our affections as you deserve. We do not obey you in our actions as you deserve. And yet, Lord, we do desire, together as a church, to be... Uh, uh, sanctified in this area. And so we ask that you would 
through uh, your word this morning, through the, the uh, a word that we'll be looking at in the weeks to come, that you will develop in us, grow within us a passion for setting aside a special time to declare your worth to us. And until we get to heaven, we will never do this perfectly. Until we uh, uh, stand before you and fall before you, we will never do this rightly. And yet, Lord, we do look forward to the blessing that is ours even as we improve in this, though imperfectly. Work in us. Shape us through your word. Let us be uh, formed into the people we were created to be, worshiping you in spirit and in truth, holding up the corporate worship of the church as a special time in our lives. We pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.